Hello, Cub family. Yes, it's not the normal introduction because today is not a normal episode. Today, we are having a special 9-11 memorial episode, speaking to Cub member and my good friend, Adrian Hondros, about his firsthand experience in being in Manhattan and under the towers as the catastrophic event of the planes hitting the towers occurred. Um, Me and Adrian discussed the experience, the lessons he's taken from it, uh, particularly lessons in leadership and perspective on life. And I think that the lessons he shares are perfectly applicable to the unbelievable experience we're all going through now with COVID. It was a very special conversation that I'll never forget. And the key lesson that I took from it was to put life into perspective. Bad things happen, but what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and and you can be a more resilient and better person uh, for experiencing adversities. So I hope you enjoyed this special episode. Hello, everybody. Um, today I'm joined with a, a, an amazing friend of mine, a, a supporter of Cub since the start and, and actually a member since the start, um, Mr. Adrian Hondros. Um, Adrian um, and I are having a very special episode today in that it, we're, we're having a, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a it's anniversary <laughs> anniversary episode for September 11, um, the horrific uh, September 11 uh, attacks uh, that occurred in New York. Uh, Adrian was in, you were in Manhattan at the time. Yep. Yeah, that's uh, and, right. And witnessed the the uh, entire uh, event, and and so firsthand has the experience of overcoming, um, and mentally, I guess, overcoming a, a traumatic experience such as uh, mm. such an almost unbelievable experience such as that. And um, and and we're going to be discussing that experience today, and and how it shaped him, and 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 how it's impacted him. Um, and I just think that. Uh, it's relevant, especially for these times, because all of us are going through a somewhat unbelievable experience at, uh, at the current moment. Um, and I think it's comforting to yeah. talk about uh, the fact that, you know, these unbelievable experiences have happened before throughout history in different forms and and the world has still gone on and people have 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 come through. So, um, Hondo, thank you so much for, for Pleasure, joining me today. Thank you so much for having me and hello to the Cub family. Yes, yes, yes. The cup, the big. This is the big the cup family. Big the cup big, family. Big, That's right. Cup family and and the amazing listeners we have, um, and and also to the listeners. I, I did say it's a Hondo before we started, but uh, today's episode isn't running. Uh, I guess in a similar fashion or structure to our to our typical episodes. But um, I, I am very close with um, Hondo, and so I feel very comfortable speaking to him about you, such, such a big event. But um, Hondo, I guess I want to start first with uh, asking you just to, I guess, share um, with us why you were in Manhattan and, and kind of what took place, what happened. I also want to make uh, clear to the listeners that I actually haven't heard this story from Adrian. So this is all very new for me um, uh, as well. But yeah, Hondo, I'd love for you to kind of set the scene as to why you were there. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. And obviously really appreciate the opportunity to talk to the Cub family about the experience and, uh, you know, 20 years on, it's almost hard to believe because it feels just as vivid as the day that it happened. Um, as I think about, think about uh, Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001. So we were there, I was with a group of 10 others and we were there on a 
so-called study tour hosted by Bankers Trust Australia. Uh, at the time, I was managing a firm called Godfrey Pembroke Financial Consultants. I was a young managing director um, and uh, we were on a so-called study tour of the US and quite frankly, we we're having a great time. I'm going from one city to the next, meeting with, as <laughs> you can imagine. I've heard banking study tours. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, banking and investment study tours are pretty good, or well, they used to be. Um, yeah, meeting with some amazing people across the US. Uh, and interestingly, um, uh, the day before, we'd been to Bernstein's, which is a famous investment bank, and uh, met with a gentleman there who was known as the, the Bear of Manhattan. And he was telling us the day before 9-11, that he sensed something bad was going to happen and had recommended to all of his wealthy clients to sell down all of their portfolios, which they'd done. Can you believe it? And so I remember... Implying that they knew something was going to happen. I don't know. He just said he, that was his words to us. He sensed something bad was going to happen and he just simply advised his clients to act accordingly and apparently a lot of them did. And I'll always remember walking out of that meeting on Monday the 10th of September thinking, "Guy, gosh, that guy's so negative. You know, I need to meet positive people. <laughs> so, but he was right. To a degree, uh, he was right. Um, so we were there on the study tour. And uh, the night before, we'd been to Yankee Stadium to the baseball on Monday, the 10th of September. Uh, you know, and we'd been out in Times Square that evening. Uh, I had wanted to go to breakfast uh, on Tuesday, the 11th of September at at 8 a.m., I'd wanted to go to breakfast before our 9 a.m. appointment, which was in the World Trade Center precinct of, of Manhattan. And my colleagues, and I'm quite stubborn, my traveling colleagues had talked me out of doing the breakfast at 8 a.m. Um, and, and had convinced me that we would go and get some photos from the windows on the World Restaurant at the top of the North Tower uh, at the 110th level at about 10.30 a.m., and so I'd been talked out of doing breakfast at 8am. Had I gone to the breakfast at 8am, then I would have perished with everyone else who was above the 91st floor of the North Tower. So there's sliding moments. And I think this is a story like a lot of people that encounter these sorts of events of sliding moments. So um, thankfully, I didn't go to the breakfast. Interestingly, Ian Thorpe, the world famous Australian swimmer, also was in New York that day. He also went to the top of the North Tower to get some photos before the first plane went in. He actually forgot his camera and went back to his hotel room to get it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just before we get more into after, after it happens, what is the feeling now of knowing that if you had, if you had turned left instead of right, yeah. you, you would be dead? You, 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 you know, you could have died. Oh, I think it's just, uh, I think you just accept that that's how it worked out, that unfortunately, um, you know, through no fault of anyone, you know, almost 3,000 people were murdered that day in front of my eyes um, by terrorists who turned, you know, aircraft, passenger aircraft into weapons. Um, how likely was it that I was even going to be in the US? How likely was it that I'd be in New York? How likely was it I'd be in my cab on West Street? How likely was it that we'd be under the North Tower when the first when the first plane went in? How likely was it that I would look up and see the first explosion? How likely was it we'd be hit with debris on our cab, but not sufficiently big debris to crush the cab? I mean, how likely are these things? They're not likely at all. 
So to then actually perish is highly unlikely. <laughs> so yeah. I kind of look at it that way that every step you get closer and closer, the least likely it is. So <laughs> I, I, I can see what you're saying. The odds are very small, but still, like for, for me, like hearing that, it makes me like and my initial feeling was, um, was, oh, it's a bit scary because, you know, if you just make one decision instead of another, yeah, it can literally can result in your, your life ending. Yeah. And at the same time, and also hearing you say it, it's kind of like, well, yeah, that's true, but that's always true, you know, and you can't be afraid to make decisions based on what could, you know, based on something potentially bad happening. I think that's correct, mate. I mean, the reality is, is that um, people are making decisions every day um, and they don't know what the result would have been had they not made those decisions. It happens on this occasion that there's a global event the entire world has witnessed and it happens to have been woven into my day. Yeah, <laughs> placed in there. Happened to be there. Order for you to remember. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. And isn't it scary also the power of uh, American money and banking? Like, you know, and obviously we're just speculating here, but, mm. but they've obviously been told or made aware that something bad could potentially be happening. And, um, and uh, are acting as a result of being told that information. Um, that's the way it would seem. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm no, not sure. Not yeah. sure. But, but I mean, I would, I would personally believe it because you know th- those big, big financial institutions—they're they're ruling all. And if something bad's going to happen, they're going to know first. They're going to be the first people told about it. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, you got to remember that Cantor Fitzgerald, um, one of the big uh, bond um, fund managers of the world, they lost almost all of their New York staff that day. So I can only assume they didn't know. So yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm not I'm not sure. And there was there's been stories and books written about um, Cantor Fitzgerald and and how they recovered from that um, event and how the organisation behaved. And uh, they really were amazing with the families and everyone that was left behind. So, yes, yeah, so I'm not, not really sure about sort of who knew or, or who didn't know. Um, and I know that there's many a conspiracy theory about what happened, did it happen, didn't it happen, all that sort of stuff. Well, I can assure you it did happen. I'm also meant not people not knowing um, that, you know, planes are going to fly into trade, mm. trade towers, but more so there could potentially be terrorist attack. But- well, I think that's one of the great failings. So, you know, when you read, and I've I ordered all of the information that was available um, from the US government. I've been through it. I was really fascinated by a lot of it. And when you read through the transcripts, when you watch the documentaries about the order of events, there are some things about it that are mystifying, uh, which is always the case, I think, in moments of crisis. And interestingly, and it's one of the lessons, I think, is that systems and procedures are only as good as the people following them. And in a crisis systems and procedures get tested. In fact, people get tested. And how do they stand up during that test really tells the tale. And, you know, when I look at some of the things that happened that day and, you know, just for example, the, you know, the New York radio broadcast was suggesting a light plane had flown into the North Tower and that's why there was a fire. Yet in downtown Manhattan, everyone knew exactly what had happened because we'd all seen it, but somehow that information hadn't actually got through to New York radio and they'd made up their own story um, just as a small example of how things can quickly go sort of off the rails. You know, you look at the response from the U S air force and 
one of the things that I always found mystifying was that they weren't that their their closest air bases aren't that far away and they've always got fighters on standby. How is it that they couldn't get fighters into the air over Manhattan between the first plane and the second plane? Well, they actually did launch F-16 fighters, but they sent them out to sea. They went the wrong way. And no one can really explain why. So even the might of the US military under pressure can can falter, and they really did falter that day. I think another one of the interesting lessons, again, about language and communication is that the US military um, have their own language around how to describe things and planes and events. The passenger airlines also have their own language. So the passenger airline security people and others were trying to talk to the US military about what was happening. If you actually listen to the audio tapes, they're speaking English, but they can't actually understand each other. <laughs> they're, not, they're using different words to describe the same things. And so it just added to the layers of confusion um, and poor response. Um, and, and it just showed that, yeah, you can have all the systems and money and might in the world, but you're really as good as your lowest common denominator. And if the people on the day don't perform, um, you're in trouble. And you can relate that, I guess, being tested under hard times to, yeah. to now and to, to teams now, uh, the situation that long-term mental stress that's being caused by, you know, being locked, locked in your house or apartment for a long period of time, people are being tested now and, and you're seeing, uh, you're seeing some, some teams able to kind of work through it and, and others are, are not. And, and I mean, every individual is in its is in their own situation. So you can, you can never um, judge on how someone does in, in what yeah. we're currently going through, but it's definitely similar in that, well, this, you know, the U S military probably wasn't expecting planes to fly into the trade center. Correct. Probably wasn't saying they practiced uh, to, to defend, no. you know, who knows, but, but you know, we certainly weren't uh, prepared to uh, work from the confines of our houses and, and, have to set up offices and be separated from the rest of the world. Correct. And, and uh, I, I just like the correlation between what you said, you know, it being tested in hard times. That, that's what we're doing. We are currently being tested, um, it, it tested under pressure in an unexpected time, just, just like um, the brave men and women that were, were, yeah. were in Manhattan at, at that point. And, and, and I guess all over, all over the world. Yeah. And I think, mate, um, and in that context, you know, lead, leadership's just such an important thing. So if you look at if you look at the events of 9-11 and, and look at who stood up as leaders, so Rudolf Giuliani was the mayor at the time. Now, he's fallen in, into disrepute given that he became the, you know, Trump's main lawyer and you'd argue he's probably lost his mind. But if you go back 20 years, they called him the mayor of, the mayor of America. He was highly revered as the mayor of New York, highly revered. And I recall his speeches and his narrative to the city on the day, the day after. We were there for five days after 9-11 because we couldn't get out uh, until the first Qantas flight out. We managed to, to get on that. Um, and that wasn't easy, but we did. Um, there was a few people trying to get out, I can assure you. And he was magnificent. Uh, and I bought his book and I held him in high regard over the years but, but without sort of reflecting on where he's landed now, but he, his leadership, his narrative that day about what had happened, what they were doing about it, 
how they were protecting the people, what was going to happen next was really critical. Another example would be George W. Bush, who was the president at the time. And George Bush Jr., um, you know, he he was often in his presidency seen as a bit of a you know, a bit of a fumbler, a bit of a bumbler, couldn't quite get the words right, maybe wasn't the smartest tool in the shed type of guy. He was kind of the the, yeah. the rich kid from the political family that yeah, yeah, yeah. not put into place. That's it, I was too young, but I, I, I yeah. heard that's how his view. Yeah, his brother, his brother. I think his brother's name was Jeb. I think had a crack, didn't quite get there. Obviously, their father had been president and was a, a well-regarded president. So yeah, he was like the yeah the, the the son of a president who who managed to find his way through. And so he's not known for his narrative. He's not known as an orator. Uh, now, while he probably took a day or two too long to go to New York, uh, keeping in mind that they would have had him locked down because of the attacks that day on the Pentagon, and we, you know, it's been well documented that the fourth plane that crashed outside of Pittsburgh, um, you recall that a movie was made about it that allegedly the passengers overcame the terrorists and crashed the plane. Well, that's one theory. Uh, there were already orders issued to shoot down any other threatening aircraft. The other theory is that the US military possibly shot down that aircraft to prevent it to get to its destination, which was the Capitol building uh, where Congress is at the end of the mall in Washington, DC. So um, people can debate that for the rest of time. But George W. Bush got to New York, I think from memory on the, the Thursday or the Friday of that week, so two or three days after. And he stood on the mound of rubble at ground zero with the workmen around him, picked up the megaphone, completely unscripted, completely authentic, and spoke for a few minutes. And it's the best few minutes of his presidency. USA. <laughs> yeah, that's USA. right. That's that's right. That famous scene. I remember that's that, that scene, when right? I was eight. You, yeah, that's that, right. it, it, was, it was almost as if this horrible event had caused a huge amount of togetherness, patriotism, belonging it was like it, it gave um, and it, it i guess it's sad to say it like this but when there's a common enemy yep there's unity we, in places where there wouldn't otherwise correct there, there may otherwise not be and and you, that scene where all the workers and and, and the policemen and, and ever all the uh, what do they call them first responders are correct in usa usa it, it's just a it's a it's a powerful moment it's also a scary moment because if, for example, if I was, um, you know, if I was a terrorist organization and I, you know, I was listening to that, I would be genuinely fearful of, wow, okay, you know. We, yeah, we've awakened the giant. You know, like <laughs> yeah. that, that would be terrifying. And See, they did. So he needed to then do something. So you're absolutely right. It was a memorable moment. Um, and then he, they needed to do something. So whether they whether it was right or wrong, um, they needed to lash out. And, you know, we were still in New York. I remember sitting in the hotel foyer of the Intercontinental um, Midtown, uh, New York, and I think it might have been two days after, was still a bit numb, um, probably had way too many gin and tonics, um, still getting over it. And, and they flashed up on the screens the skies over Kabul, in Afghanistan, and and you know America had already launched its first raid on where they suspected the Al Qaeda terrorists were, and they were trying to get Osama bin Laden. It all happened very quickly. Now, as we know, it took years to get Osama bin Laden. But the skies of Afghanistan were lit up by missile strikes, cruise missile strikes, 
within two or three days, four days of the attack on on um, New York and Washington. Um, and here we are, 20 years later, and the last US troops have just left Afghanistan. So uh, it's just, yeah, so, some of the things are just sort of really important to pause and sort of think about how do these things ver reverberate around the world. Uh, but we have to do, we do have to remember that the war on terror, the so-called war on terror, which is a war that still goes on today, started that day of um, September 11th, 2001, and unusually, it started on the streets of Manhattan. So there's not many wars that start on the streets of a major US city, but that's the reality of what happened and everything that's happened since, including the invasion of Afghanistan. And you'd argue the connection with the invasion um, of Iraq um, and all the terrible loss of life and terrible waste that's happened since then. I'm not sure how much better off we are, but um, there's, you know, the, the, 20 years later, it still reverberates around the world. I guess one kind of lesson from all of that is that with adversity, there is unity. You know, yeah. In times of challenge or in times of shock, it actually can bring people closer together. Um, and, and that could potentially be just a thought for people to have in, in, in these type of moments. It's, you know, it does yeah. bring people closer together and, and, and that makes, makes us stronger. And Hondo, can you... Um, share actually can you describe and tell us the story of the actual experience so so sure. you know you mentioned that you were supposed to go to breakfast you, you didn't if you if you did quite quite well you, you could not be having this conversation with me today right oh it definitely wouldn't have been yep yeah it's it's very it's i'm finding it almost i don't want to say awkward but yeah i'm finding it hard so i just want to make that sure clear just in case i'm talking slow but can you tell us the story of the experience so what you saw who you with how you felt Yep. Yeah. So we were late for our appointment from Midtown. We had to get to downtown, um, to, to Wall Street area. Um, and so we were a bit late. We got in a cab from the, from the Fairmont at um, Midtown Manhattan. And uh, interestingly, the cab driver, and I knew it at the time, he milked us. He took us the long way, which caused us to be even later. <laughs> So, and I was already a bit pissed off with him for doing that because I don't like being late, as you would well know. So, this is not a good this is not a good start to the day in my book. Um, and uh, we came out of the West Street Tunnel at the at the lower tip of Manhattan, and we're turning we're coming back up the tunnel, and we were a, a block or two from um, the North Tower. And I remember looking up. I took a photo of the North Tower because it just was such a brilliant day. It was such a beautiful fall day. Um, being the um, you know, the 11th of September, and it was a stunning, beautiful, still, clear day, which kind of added to the drama of it because yeah, it, it just made it. It's just this sort of compare and contrast the the serenity of such a beautiful day, and then the horror of what unfolded. So I was with Chris Freeman of Bankers Trust Australia and John Hender, who was a financial advisor who supported Bankers Trust at the time. We were in one cab. There were three other cabs, and we're all heading for the same appointment. Uh, and all a bit late, but we were all scattered within about a, a few minutes of each other. And I was on the right-hand side of the cab on West Street, and we were travelling up West Street, just approaching the World Trade Centre precinct, and I looked up, for whatever reasons, I looked up at the North Tower and saw it explode. So for whatever reasons, I decided to look up uh, and saw it explode. And I actually had, I know the, the listeners can't see it, but I had my trusty Pentax <laughs> camera. Oh, that's an old school camera. <laughs> 
but that's right. This camera is actually older than you and I've still got it. Um, so I had my trusty Pentax. I only had a few shots in it uh, because I had, as I said, wanted to go there um, originally for breakfast, but then we were going for morning tea to, to get some photos from the North Tower. And so here's one of the photos that I took. Um, oh my God, you actually took a photo. I've got photos. This is one of them. It has yeah. a hole in the side of it yeah. and smoke gushing out and up. So I've leaned out the cab window and um, uh, and taken it. You're in between the more low right, the old, what you call them, the older school buildings in Manhattan, the, the low ones. Yeah. And you can see the, the tower behind those buildings just gushing with smoke. And, and so did, were you, did you watch the plane go into that tower? So the plane came from Midtown and there's a famous clip, many people would have seen it, of a French film crew that was doing a documentary on the US Fire Department that day and they were in Midtown and they filmed, they heard and then filmed the first American Airlines flight go over the top of their heads from Midtown and go into that side, which was the opposite side from us, to the North Tower. Um, so what I heard, I heard something. I saw the explosion. I didn't know what had caused the explosion, but it was an almighty explosion, as you can imagine. And I actually thought we were going to die at that moment because the building exploded towards us and down. So the explosion, the cloud of fire and debris and smoke was coming towards us. So when the plane hit the tower on the opposite side, it pushed through the tower and then sort of amplified out onto the other side, mostly onto West Street, which is the main thoroughfare um, just next to the World Trade Centre there. Now, everything stopped, as you can imagine. It was that classic New York disaster scene that we've seen in so many, so many movies. Um, and, you know, within moments, there seemed to be police on horseback and people running and screaming, and it was just absolute mayhem. But interestingly, Chris Freeman and I, got out of the cab and we were talking across the roof of our yellow New York taxi. John Hender, who was in the middle, he was unwilling or had frozen or whatever, but he didn't get out, nor did our cab driver. So the traffic stopped. We're in gridlock. I recall a policeman on a horse screaming at me. I've got no idea what he was saying. Um, but Chris and I were having a conversation around what we had thought had happened. And we were looking up at the tower that was crackling and burning over our heads. And I said to Chris, what do you think happened, mate? And he said, well, Maybe a photocopier exploded. <laughs> I said, oh my God. I said, Chris, mate, I think you're a few steps behind. He was in shock. Yeah, he was in shock, which is fair enough. You wouldn't, before, I mean, now you might think, okay, it could be a plane, but back then, no, you wouldn't think, oh, a plane no. just flew into a tower. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think, mate. So, so it wasn't within our paradigm. And I just think this is an important lesson around if you're leading organizations or trying to live your life. We're governed by our paradigm. So our paradigm, and I said to him, Chris, that was no photocopier, mate. I said, I think something hit the building. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, I think something hit the building. It sort of moved towards us and the whole thing exploded towards us. It kind of, I said to him, it exploded out towards us. So something hit it. And he's like, well, what would have hit it? I said, I've got absolutely no idea. And I said to him, well, it can't be a plane because it's such a clear day. What pilot couldn't have seen the towers? So my immediate paradigm was it can't be a plane because if it was a plane, it was an accident. And how could you not see the towers on such a beautiful, clear day? So we completely ruled out a plane and we decided that someone had fired a missile at the tower. And so it had been hit by a missile and therefore, and I remember saying to him, and you know what, Chris, where there's one, there's at least one more. Let's get the F out of here. 
And did you run or did you get back? You couldn't get back in a taxi, could you? Well, we, we thought about running back down West Street into the West Street Tunnel, thinking maybe we'd be safer in the tunnel if there was more coming. Um, but then I said, oh, I don't really want to be in a tunnel. That feels yeah. a bit claustrophobic. And we couldn't get to it anyway. It was just impossible for us to get back. It was mayhem. So we got back in the cab and the cab driver would just refuse to move. And I, we, and it was reported in the Western Australian and the Australian and other newspapers and on ABC Radio when I did my interview with the late Ian Cameron. It was reported that I'd used words that I wouldn't necessarily use in front of my mum and dad to convince the cab driver that he needed to move this cab to save our lives and, and indeed his own life. And so what we suggested to him that he needed to ram the cars around us and go down the footpath and get the hell out of there because we were fearful of what was coming next, um, not that we knew. And so he did that? He did that under oh duress. <laughs> so he rammed a few cars and we went down the footpath and knocked over a few things and so you he, can understand it was mayhem, mate. So he's Hondo. A taxi full of bankers or a couple of bankers. <laughs> a, a plane has just flown into a building and it, it exploded. And you've and you're screaming at the taxi driver, telling him to ram ram objects, cut whatever's around yeah. you, make room to then get on the footpath and drive. And so you're in the back of a taxi on a footpath in Manhattan, driving away from an explosion to save your lives down. Correct. A- That's the summary. With people and horses and all sorts yeah. of things. Mayhem, mayhem. Oh, my God. And so what happened was was that um, he, the guy's in shock, um, to be fair. His, his English wasn't good. Um, uh, I think he might have, might have been of um, Pakistani um, descent or nationality. I think we've discovered that eventually. So his English wasn't good, the poor guy. And he was, he was under, like we're all under amazing stress. And so, so he, he went into shock, but he's still driving the cab. And so the force, the first responders are racing towards us, and we're racing away f- from how the scene. How brave are those people? Amazing, right? They and, are and true heroes. I love how America always, always highlights their first responders. And as you know, you know, hundreds of them died um, in oh. in the building, um, in the buildings. What amazing, which is terrifying. What amazing human beings, willing, willing willingly, being willing to run into an explosion. Even if you don't have family members in there, just for just for for fellow citizens, you can't be a better human being than that. Yeah, extraordinary, mate, and and they were amazing, and it gives me chills to think that they were racing past us. We're trying to get away. They're trying to get in there. They've gone running up the staircases of the North Tower. They've gone running up the staircases of the South Tower, and you know, a lot of those people that raced past us never got out. They never came back. And you think um, to yourself as well, would would I do that? You know, would you do that? It's a hard question. You like, you know, if you were first responder, that was your role, or if you're just a normal citizen, like it's a big question to ask yourself. And and I just don't think there would be many people. It's, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. and that's why they're highly revered as they as they should be. The challenge for us was was that the ambulances, police cars, fire engines were racing towards us at let's use kilometers at the best part of 100 kilometres an hour down New York streets, we're actually racing towards them, let's use kilometres, at about 100 kilometres an hour. Um, and that means we're passing each other at about 200 k's an hour on New York Street. It's unbelievable. And tell me, when you're in that state of shock, yeah, are you aware? Are you hyper aware? Do you remember anything? Are you... Um, is it details, non-details? Is your heart, you know, what's happening? 
Yeah, you're full of adrenaline, so um, you abs- your body, you've got that whole fight flight that's all ingrained in our DNA. That's how we've survived as a species and thrived. So flight kicked in um, as a survival mechanism. Um, we lost you know, the first plane went at about 8:44 a.m. We can't really account for about 20 minutes. So there's about 20 minutes that we can't really account for. We can account for some of it. Um, and we've we've talked it through um, on many occasions over the last 20 years, but for most of that first 20 minutes, we're not exactly sure what we did or what we didn't do. Um, we don't have a full account of it, and I just think that's part of the shock. One of the one of the visions I do recall before we convinced the cab driver to to get away was that um, uh, two or three cabs in front of us, two or three cars in front of us, all of the cars were completely. Um, you know, completely destroyed by the building. So we we were very, very close to being on the wrong side of that line. Um, and thankfully, we were a bit later than we actually, you know, thankfully we were late and not on time or early for that matter. Um, so I've done some writing on it and I, I term, I use the terminology toes on the front line of history. Um, and, and I really do feel that we did have our toes on that front line. And had we just had our feet slightly over that line, uh, we probably wouldn't have been around to do it, but that—that's that. That's, that I've, I, I use that terminology to try to describe how we feel, and and the words are deliberate. Toes, as in Jesus, it was close, um, and front line, as in that was the start of a war that still goes today, and that was the front line, and it was history. And in some respects, you know, while I'm grateful to have survived, obviously, and be here 20 years later talking about it. I kind of, in a way, it sounds weird. In a way, I do feel a bit privileged in a way, and it's probably a bit bit strange, but to witness such a thing and to have the opportunity to process it, think about it, and then determine how to live life as a result is kind of a privilege because, you know, to be that close but not be injured, um, but to be close enough to see it with your own eyes and then to have that raw experience and, I often say to meet yourself that day, and we all met ourselves that day in that fear of death. Um, it's it's an unusual, and to do it kind of on a world stage event, it's it's a it's an unusual set of uh, set of circumstances, Daniel, as you'd appreciate. So, um, but as you know, also I've certainly tried to draw strength from it. In simple terms, what I'm taking from that is that. What doesn't kill you makes, makes you stronger. stronger. I guess I'm privileged that yes, I, I I didn't you know it didn't kill me, and I'm privileged because now I'm I know more about myself as a person, and therefore I'm a stronger person. I'm a yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, as the people that have worked with me over the years, you know, it, it's it's absolutely made me, uh, I think, more able to absorb the stuff going on around me. It probably helps me stay calmer. Um, I'm probably a different person to what I would have been. Well, yeah, you wouldn't be phased by much that happens anymore. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be stone cold calm. And that's just the reality, right? I mean, my reference point, you know, I used to say in the early years when people used to talk about it more frequently that you know, everyone that was there got recalibrated. You know, we were recalibrated. What does a bad day look like? What does a good day look like? You know, a bad day is not getting to go home because you got killed at work. A good day is you get to go home. I mean, that's... You get recalibrated, um, and, and I mean that. It's that's that's genuinely the case. Um, 
So just a little bit more on exactly what happened. So we're racing away. Um, we're unsure about what's happened. We're under, we know we're under some form of attack, but we don't really understand from who or how. Um, that's our view. And then we hear the noise of the second American Airlines plane. And it's coming, we see it, we hear it, we look out the back of our taxi um, window and we see it and people would remember it arced into the second tower. Um, it's quite a famous image and a massive explosion as it hits the middle of the South Tower. And so we witnessed it. I remember screaming. I screamed. I don't mind admitting I screamed. You Chris Freeman screamed. <laughs> we screamed at each other um, along the lines of what the F is going on. Oh, my God. It's an aeroplane. Oh, my God. The other one must have been an aeroplane. They are passenger airliners. They've gone into the two towers of the World Trade Centre. We're under attack. What else is happening in the world? What's happening in the rest of the US? <laughs> What's going to happen to us? Like, you know, your mind just starts racing. Um, how the hell are we going to get out of here? What's literally, who is this? What's happening? Are we at war? What's going on? Like, just panic. I think, I think it'd be fair to say sheer panic descended when we saw the second plane go in. And, and, and the fact that you were able to see it in such detail that you knew it was a passenger airline is, is scary. I was, I, I was just about to ask you, I wonder, what, what, I wonder why human beings are wired to scream when something happens. <laughs> but I just, I, just, I just solved it for myself. It, it would most certainly be evolved in us to alert others around us that something yeah. bad is happening and to run. That would yeah. be- I, I don't mind. It was sheer, it was just pure emotion, mate. Um, and Chris Freeman, I had, I had, um, you'd find it humorous now. Remember there's no social media emails, a relatively new thing. Uh, and you had to hire special type of phone when you went to the U S, um, to actually have a mobile. It was quite a big kind of like almost walkie talkie style. Bigger than your, bigger than your camera. <laughs> bigger than, bigger than my camera. Wow. Um, and I had one of those things where we had it on the tour with us so we could still have contact with the office and home, et cetera. So Chris Freeman was on mine talking to his wife while when I screamed. <laughs> that would so have been incredibly unsettling um, for her to hear. Oh, incredibly unsettling. And he's, and then he's heard his reaction. Then, of course, the line's gone out because um, everything got massively disrupted after the second plane went in. Uh, and it took a long time for us to have contact again with our family in, in, in any part of Australia. But it was really at that moment, and I'll always remember the look on his face. He'll always remember the look on my face. And remember we've got um, John Hender sitting in between us. Who still hasn't moved. Bless him, hasn't done much. He's a great guy, but everyone reacts differently. Um, and uh, uh, it would be fair to say that we were panicked. So we got back to our hotel, the Fairmont in Midtown, and we were the first people in Midtown to get back to Midtown. So what everyone needs to realise is that Lower Town, lower, lower Manhattan was under attack. Midtown didn't know it. So this is an interesting thought. Let's make clear as well, yeah. just for those who perhaps yeah. may not have been to Manhattan, Manhattan is a monstrous city. Like something happening downtown, you could very easily have no idea. No idea. So yeah. even as big as that, that's how big this city is. I, I always relate. Manhattan, the way I think about it is when you're driving up to Manhattan from the airport and you see the tower of buildings for the mm. first time, you feel small. You feel like you're driving into where a 
where not just one King Kong is. It, there's a jungle. It's a jungle. Yeah. And so I just want to make that very clear so people can put in this perspective. Mm. Yeah, a plane could blow up a building and some people still have no idea. Yeah. No, that's exactly right, mate. So we, we got back to our hotel and we were the first people in that hotel who knew what was happening. So we've come, so we've, I've, pay, I've paid the cab driver. I've looked at his cab and said, mate, is this your car? He's gone, it's not my car. I went, okay, I'm sorry to hear that because now you have to explain to the owner of the car what happened. But I did say to him, don't worry, I think he's going to work it out pretty soon. <laughs> so I said, just go home to your family. We tipped him. I said, just go home to your family. Don't worry about the car. The world's going to change. You don't need to worry about it. Um, and so we've burst, literally burst into the doors of, um, of our hotel and um, the Barclay, I think I said the Fairmont before, but it's the Barclay, um, Midtown Manhattan, and um, um, uh, literally burst into the foyer of a busy foyer at about now, let's call it 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, the 11th of September, and announced in our Aussie accents, panicked to the foyer of this hotel that you're under attack, you don't even know it, the north, you know, the north tower's been hit by a passenger plane. The south tower's been hit by a passenger plane. We've, we're literally just screaming at them this nonsense, and the entire hotel, everyone in the foyer, in the lounge, in the breakfast area, the security people. There's just this moment where they all just turn and look at us, and we're frozen looking at them. Oh, <laughs> and there's just this moment of. What are like they're just they were all just looking at us thinking, what are you talking about? And are you a threat? Like they were looking at us as in, are you a threat? And we're like, what? <laughs> anyway, and so sure enough, yeah, you know, almost on cue, CNN started broadcasting uh, on the screens in the bar, and then it all became very apparent. But it's a very unusual feeling to be telling people something like that at a moment like that, where they had no idea. They literally were clueless. Something unbelievable. Imagine trying Something. to tell someone, it's like when people say they saw an alien, kind of like the same thing. It's like, well, I saw it, you didn't. And Hondo, how has going through this impacted your life? Yeah, I think, mate, um, yeah, a few things. So I think first and foremost, and it's not, not too dissimilar to the COVID experience, uh, and you've heard me say it before, you know, live life, make your plans and do them. You Don't, also said something I want to highlight as well, yeah, which, go ahead. Is, which is uh, measure what you can control as well. You know, keep, keep, keep in, your, in, your, in your sphere, yeah. look at what you can control, which was something helped us tremendously throughout COVID. Well, I think that's exactly right. And, and 9-11, you know, I, I couldn't control any of that, like none of it. Um, and it threatened my life and the life of my fellow, um, fellow travellers and took the lives of thousands of people. So do you let that trouble you or not? Um, what do you learn from it? it? It's about taking control of the things that you can control and you can control what you do, how you do it, the plans that you make, the things that you decide to do. And so that saying of, you know, not to put off till tomorrow, uh, tomorrow to what you can do today, like there's, a, there's something about if you can do it today, do it today. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. Um, and, you know, no one rang a bell just before the first tower exploded. There's no warning that something bad's going to happen. It just happens. Um, and so you just don't know what might come or not come. And, you know, COVID's proved to us over the last year and a half that, that we don't know. Um, now we could sit around worrying about it. We could sit around putting off our plans. We could sit around saying it's all too hard. But just imagine if your approach to COVID was it's all too hard and a year and a half later 
it's still hard. <laughs> so, so it's just a classic, whether it's 9-11, whether it's COVID, whatever it is, you know, people have just got to get on with their lives and do the best they can and pivot and be agile and adapt. And, and just adapt, yeah, just give it a go, which, you know, you guys at Cub, you and the team at Cub have done. Many of our, you know, many of your members, many of, many of my fellow members have absolutely adapted their businesses to to everything around them due to COVID. So, yeah, I think so. I've also given some thought to the context of 20 years later, and and this is probably at a macro level. You know, there's a lot there's a lot being written about the demise of the of the US and the US empire. And if you sort of and there's there's parallels. There's a lot being written about it at the moment, and and you may have seen some of it. And it is interesting, you know, whether 9/11 actually or by way of perception diminished the US to a degree. I guess it did. It resulted in the US and us and others going into Afghanistan for 20 years. Has that diminished the power or the perception of the power of the US and the West? It probably has. If you look at COVID, and there's a parallel here that I've thought through. If you look at COVID, you know, COVID wreaked havoc on the United States. There's no other way of describing describing it. It absolutely wreaked havoc on the United States, killing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of their citizens and making millions sick. Wreaked havoc on the place as it diminished its power and position in the world, probably. But interestingly, you know, the war on terror that started at 9-11, that resulted in us having less freedoms, um, and, and that's absolutely the case. You know, 19 or 20 years later, COVID came along, and that's resulted in us having a lot less freedoms. Both events have arguably diminished sort of the positional power of the US, which is the at least self-proclaimed beacon of freedom in the world. So this, it's just, yeah, I just sort of look at it from a macro point of view and think this is really interesting. There's two major events. They're about 20 years apart. They've both dented or diminished the US to a degree. And at the same time, they've impinged on our freedoms. It's just an interesting kind of parallel. But wouldn't you say that COVID has done that to every, to, or to most nations, whereas September 11 was specifically um, the US? That was it. So yes and no. So COVID has done it to all nations, but it hit the US particularly hard. Um, and 9-11, while it started in Manhattan, it effectively spread around the world in different forms and has affected all of us due to the new law, you know, anti-terrorism laws that got passed and the way we're treated at airports and the ability for you to be detained under suspicion without proof. And, and that happens here as well as other countries. So I think that they've both they've both impinged or they've detracted from our freedoms globally. Um, it's just, yeah, I just had the, I kind of had the thought last night. How do you relate, like, what are lessons you took from 9-11 and how do you relate it to what we're currently experiencing now? Because right now, yep. for example, I mean, I told you before we started the episode um, that I remember 9-11 and I was only seven or eight. And I was, I remember sitting on my parents' bed and my mum crying you know, that, that I was, I don't remember yesterday for me to remember saying when I'm seven or eight, that means something obviously was shocking me. Like there was some sort of chemical um, stamp on my brain that was, and, and we're going through a real life thing that now I'm going through, through something as an adult that is also, also unbelievable. So I guess, how do you relate the two and how do you relate the lessons that you've taken from nine 11 to today? Yeah. So just a few things and some of them, um, We've mentioned. So I think first of all, yeah, live life. So Emma and I, my wife and I, uh, obviously incredibly stressful time for her. Um, the kids were only little, 
remember 20 years ago. How old were you? So we can I was 35. That. Yeah, so you were very you were a young man. You were that's probably your prime as a young <laughs> man. Like that's that you know it was probably not a bad time to experience it as you say. It was kind of that middle ground if you like. Um and we had, you know, Emma and I we had three kids at the time I think under 5. Um if I've got that right, yeah, that sounds right. Um, and our, our youngest, Ben, who's now 18 and doing his HSC trials from home, he wasn't born. So, so uh, you know, one of the things we resolved to do was to, yeah, make sure that we had that fourth child that we talked about having and, and have a big family. So that was, uh, I guess, part of our way of responding, that we really wanted to take a positive view. So I think the first lesson is get on with life, do what you plan to do. Don't be scared by things that happen around you out of your control. Eventually, it all passes and life goes on. So don't let events of the past sort of impinge on or detract from the future. Um, and you can allow yourself to get troubled to the extent where you don't do things you otherwise would have done, which is just a shame because it's it's all in your head. Uh, so I think that's a, a key thing to to stay optimistic, stay positive and, and go not get on with life regardless of the challenges around you. And COVID, I think, is a, a further example of that. I think secondly, as a business leader, Daniel, I think that whether you're a political leader or a business leader in a crisis, and um, uh, I know I've talked to you a little bit about this and to other members as well, uh, you know, at the start of COVID, uh, I did a terrific session uh, with INSEAD. I did also one with Harvard. And a lot of it was around leadership in a crisis and the importance of communication. And so when I go and think back and look at my you know, newspaper clippings and all the things I've saved from the experience of 9-11. One of the things that has dawned on me is that communication is critical, particularly in a crisis, particularly when people are feeling vulnerable, uncertain, unsure, anxious. Uh, and as I said, you know, Rudolf, Rudolf Giuliani as mayor of New York was terrific at communicating during that time. George W. Bush had his best communication moment during that time. So there's a definite lesson around Communication is always important, but it's particularly important when people are feeling anxious or uncertain. And I think we've all learned that again um, during during COVID. It's a it's a key lesson for for a business leader to ensure that they're continually communicating uh, around what's happening, what it means, and what the business is going to do about it. Uh, if you leave people to their own thoughts, they'll get lost in those thoughts. And can you tell us uh, in more detail? Um, how to communicate. You mentioned that the way uh, it's Mayor Giuliani. Yeah, Mayor Giuliani, yep. Yeah, you mentioned it was the way he was communicating was good. How was he communicating and how do you now apply that to your current communication skills? Yeah, so I think authenticity is critical. So people will pick spin or something that's been prepared earlier. Uh, They'll pick it in a nanosecond and it just doesn't have any value. So I think you've just got to back yourself and be willing to actually say the things that you need to say at the time, the way you need to say them. And it's also okay. It doesn't like, it's okay to say that you don't have all the answers. So I think a mistake that a, that a leader can make, whether it be in business or politics. And I think unfortunately we're seeing in the Australian political scene at the moment, a reluctance to acknowledge that they don't have all the answers. I think the Australian people would be happy for anyone just to say, look, I don't really understand exactly what's going on here, but I'm going to give it my best shot and these are things I'm doing and history history will judge me accordingly. I think people just want you to be real and just say it how it is. So it's it's that authentic communication. Uh, these are the things we're doing. This is why we're doing it. 
but also there are things we don't really know. There are things we don't really understand. We're working on it. Uh, we're open to suggestions and ideas, but you know we're in uncharted waters. It's 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 okay to acknowledge that. It's not realistic just because you happen to be the CEO of a business or the general manager of a division or the um, managing director or whatever the case may be, just because you've got that title doesn't instantly mean you've got all the answers. And any leader that thinks that is going down the wrong path. And I guess the other thing is um, outlining plans and giving some sort of level of certainties. Like, for example, I read um, a quote from Gladys that said, you know, once we're yep. vaccinated, we will um, we will be as free as we can be with Delta. You know, that gives me absolutely no certainty whatsoever of anything. I have no <laughs> understanding of what that means. Uh, what does that mean? More free than I am now? Am I allowed to go see my mum from a distance? Am I, you know, am I? What does that mean? And yeah. and I mean, it, it, I, I think having a plan and some sort of um, it, it doesn't have to be certainty in that. That's going to happen it has to at least be this is what we're intending to happen this is what it looks like yeah so i think the so i think what you what we're witnessing around australia is a reluctance for leaders to actually describe what they think will happen and then have the um courage to say down the track look i thought this would happen it hasn't so now we're doing this so i think they're getting themselves tangled in i don't want to say or do anything that doesn't prove to be right well, that's impossible. I mean, we're dealing with something of which there is no blueprint. There's no precedent. We don't know. So I'd be saying, um, uh, as they say at Harvard, give us the brutal truth and give us the reason for hope. So the brutal truth is the facts. These are the facts and it's not looking pretty. But the reason for hope is that because of the vaccination rates, we believe that by the end of September, we'll be able to do these things. By the end of October, we'll be able to do these things. You know, And whether it's um, Gladys Berejiklian or any of the other premiers, they can't speak for the other states, but she can say, in my state, this will be the case. And she can also say, look, if we get there and find out that's not the case, I'll be the first to let you know. I mean, it's just real, right? So I think people would rather be given reasons for hope, even if when you get there, it ends up a bit different. Uh, you'd prefer to have that than sort of have not much because you don't know what it is you're working towards. I think she's she has come out with some commentary around cafes and bars and restaurants and all those sorts of things. Without yeah. getting too much into it. Yeah, into that. <laughs> I do love that, though. Give yeah. us the brutal truth and give us a reason for hope. Yeah, correct. So and treat me treat me with respect. That's code for, mate. Treat me treat me with respect. Like yeah. I'm, I'm your employee. I'm a member of your political party. I'm a constituent that votes for you. Whatever it is, right? Treat me with respect, like give me the opportunity to make good judgment um, by giving me the facts, giving me a reason for hope um, and, and, and give me a break. Like let me, let me feel how I need to feel about it. Don't try to protect me by not giving me anything. Like, don't treat me as a mushroom and keep me in the dark yeah. and give me the opportunity. Uh, yeah. And just to finish up, what, I guess what would be your final message or lesson um, that you'd like to share with the listeners? I guess the final message from from today's episode or your experiences with 9-11 and, and through COVID? Yeah, look, I think it, I think we've touched on it, Daniel. I think it really comes down to um, you know, live life, make your plans, uh, hug the ones you love, uh, do wonderful things with the ones that you love. Uh, if you've been thinking about starting a new business, do it. If you've been thinking about planning the next thing, do it. <laughs> so I think it's just about having having a determination to 
fulfill yourself and your family and friends to the best of your ability and and just just have a go like just have a go because there's nothing worse than hearing someone say I'll do that next year well okay great I'm sorry but I don't know what the situation is going to be next year so I don't know whether you can do that or not so I'd be uh, you know I'd be encouraging everyone strongly encouraging everyone to make their plans and fulfill them and enjoy um, their lives and their businesses and their families and friends you know, it can, unfortunately, there were people that had that all taken away uh, and they didn't expect it to happen either, not in their wildest dreams, just like us. So, yeah, that, that'd be the key message, mate, just to to embrace it. To give life your best shot. Yep, I think so. Thank you, Hondo, and thank you so much for today. Um, of course, we've made this episode in in memory and, and, and honour of, of um, the, the people that, you know, lost their lives and and all were affected by that horrible event and um i guess we're trying to find and share some light uh, that can come from that with with anyone listening today some light yep. some lessons and something that makes us stronger for it. I'll show you one more thing so I've got lots of things this is for those that can see it that's the newspaper that was the late afternoon edition and i'll just uh, describe it it's a black and white image of the top of the tower already on on uh, with with smoke uh, ballooning out the top and a plane uh, about 20 meters away from hitting it yeah, the new york post late edition special edition with the word terror, terror in large letters i bought this paper actually i bought 20 of them from a young paper boy i reckon he was about 14 or 15 on the corner of um first avenue and the street that the barclay was on and I had to get out of the hotel, so and there was obviously no one there. And he'd been sent out by the New York Post, regardless of the circumstances, to sell his papers. And I walked up to him and said, why are you here? He said, they told me I had to come and sell these papers, and until I've sold them, I can't go home. And I said to him, that's not right. I'll buy all your papers now, mate. So I bought all of them. <laughs> I had a stack of New York Post papers <laughs> and took them, sent the kid on his way. I think I gave him a 20-buck tip as well. Send him on his way. Don't know his name. Obviously, never saw him again. And then took them back to the hotel and just stuffed uh, stuffed them on top of the um, counter and just said, that, that "There's a few is, papers for everyone." <laughs> that is so Australian in the American world. You know, that's what that is. That is the Australian. That is the Australian light shining in, the, in an American. Hondo, thank you so much. Thank for you, that. mate. Um, pleasure, uh, Daniel. And to the listeners, I, I, I truly hope that you are able to find some light and some lessons through. Uh, Adrian's experiences um, and uh, like Hondo said let's give life our best shot and do the best we can in any circumstance any circumstance we find ourselves in thanks Hondo thank you mate all the best